be yourself. And what I mean by that is like be everything you are with no apologies. You're listening to Ear, Brain, Heart, an experiment in showing up. I'm Mark Stedman, and I have a disability which is different from being disabled. It's something I have rather than something I am. As such, I've never been a very good advocate for things like accessibility, except when it involves people failing to do the bare minimum. But as I learned from my guest today, that's okay. Being disabled, as we talked about with Matthew Bellringer, doesn't always mean being on point to talk about it. It's also expensive and, frankly, sometimes a right pain in the arse. Now, this episode gets into some pretty serious territory. My guest is Rachel Mole, founder of SICK and Accessibility Campaigner. She also has a disability and, like lots of people under our current government, is at the thin end of the wedge right now. I try not to get into politics too much, not because I'm unable to stand up for what I know is right, but because, well, once you start, where do you stop? Well, we start with Rachel and I discussing the current state of affairs for disabled people in 2022 under a regime of austerity that forces those most in need to the back of the queue. Let's be honest, like our government and our current regime don't care and to know that you exist within a society that does not actually want you here can put that burden of proof of like almost I have to prove why I deserve to exist (laughs) you know that is emotionally draining and I think the assumption that it should be down to the individual disabled person to fight for that is a wrong assumption because we do not every day have that level of energy to go into the world with when we are faced with barriers to accessing things from like food, housing, like we don't have marriage equality. So a lot of us are unable to work or at least earn enough money to survive. So we have benefits, personal independent payment, and also like they're moving over now like a standard universal credit. But if you're disabled and you move in with somebody, you marry someone, you lose that benefit. So the expectation is that your partner will be financially the provider, which means that a lot of disabled people either choose not to get married because they're going to lose their benefit and they need to be contributing to the household. Or, and this is like, obviously not in every case but it puts many disabled people in a very vulnerable situation where they're relying on their partner to be their sole financial provider and there is a lot of financial emotional abuse that could come from that if you're relying on somebody to potentially like especially like as if you need care there is an expectation by the government that your partner will pick up the hours that they can't provide for you and I think going into then like whose burden is it to champion our cause we also can't blame non-disabled people for not kind of picking up that torch because it's a case of like you don't know what you don't know and 
If you've never had a disability, if you've never existed within our community, even like on the periphery, then you just don't know because we don't have accurate representation of what it's like to be disabled in the media. There is so much bias, unconscious, but also like blatant bias. We don't have disabled people in the workplace unless you exist like within the community. You probably don't have disabled friends. And these able-bodied bubbles, we're slowly seeing it kind of burst with the surgence of like mental health and neurodiversity like conversations, which is fantastic. And by the way, like they are absolutely disabilities because we're disabled by society by having them working within like the social model of disability, which is the model that we supposedly have in the UK. So back to like, Whose burden is it to progress us? I would argue that we all have a responsibility to do a little, and it shouldn't be on one person to do everything. So, how do we start those conversations? How do we provide a platform to have those conversations in a safe way? And I don't mean like in a, oh my God, liberal snowflake way. I mean, this could literally trigger someone's PTSD. So, no, this shouldn't always be like a lunchtime conversation over a sandwich like how do we hold space for all these conversations in a way that is meaningful and therefore has an impact i remember going to when the system moved to the pip from the disability and work thing the dw you know all that stuff so when when that moved to to the the, the pip i remember going for an assessment and sitting with the with the assessor who is just some person from this company capita who runs half oh. of it's a, a commercial organization who yeah you yeah you know it who run half of uh, half of my, my local council anyway some person with with no training who then is doing my disability assessment and asking me if i take drugs and drink and that probably doesn't occur to someone without a disability but that's if if someone is asking you that question alongside what are your needs what are we going to pay for and then they ask you that that's that's quite and uh, you know i i refuse to answer the question because that's none of anyone's business <laughs> well yeah it's a checkbox of is this disabled person disabled enough to deserve our sympathy and support so I also went through that assessment at the tender age of 18. At that point in my life, I was housebound and I was bedbound. I did not have a diagnosis because doctors had continually gaslit me for many years. Um, I was under complete round-the-clock care from my mother, a registered nurse, who without her advocacy, I would not be here today. And during that, assessment I was refused care because I had brushed my hair that morning and I had maintained eye contact throughout the session this is not an uncommon thing I'm hearing yes it's that the entire point of how PIP is structured is to demoralize and dehumanize disabled people into not fighting for it when they were initially refused it so they end up not having to pay out and that leads to a system of utter oppression of disabled people needing 
family and friends to step up financially and for care that really they should not have to be doing because that care should be provided by the state. It also leads to non-disabled people looking from the outside in and just seeing loads of disabled people not getting the awards. It perpetuates the idea that disabled people are faking it, aren't bad enough to get it, are scroungers, benefit frauds. So it perpetuates that stereotype that when you say to a disabled person, why do you deserve this? Why do you need it? I should not have to relay my entire medical history to an untrained person. Like, why do you need to know, like, toileting and showering and and how all of that affects me to get a tick box to how much I deserve? Because it's graded as well. It's not just like one award and you can go up and down grades. They can just pull that for no reason. (laughs) It's utterly dehumanizing. But it's important to note, to be disabled in the UK costs around £570 a month more than if you were non-disabled. So there is a tax for being disabled and then we're being refused rights, basically. It's grim, isn't it? It's not a fun, bubbly conversation. It is grim. Um, By way of helping us move from that into some possibly some broader advocacy when we have these kinds of discussions one of the things i'm really interested in is how do we keep the joy in our causes you know if if we if we are trying to uh create change if we if we're agents of change that means a lot of having to explain things to people that means a lot of the conversations we're having now in order to not go insane how can you keep hold of joy and and perhaps playfulness or lightness in perhaps your advocacy or just you know in the way that you show up with with people it is difficult i mean the pure idea of disabled joy is uncomfortable for a lot of people because there's that assumption of how can you possibly be happy and it's like how dare you oh yeah like am i not allowed to laugh am i not allowed to love who i am as a person has society taught you that being disabled is like literally worse than death? I think from an individual perspective, it took me a long time to find joy through like just purely existing. And for me, I am in a position where I've made it my career to talk about this. So if I'm talking to like a very like specific person, it's about kind of trying to understand who they are and what their experiences have been. And rather than starting from scratch, trying to build on to whatever their experience has been, because at some point, nearly every one of us will have experienced a disabling barrier. And I'm a big advocate for bringing other identities into the disabled identity. So using the social model of disability where impairment is separate from disability, impairment being the inherent condition, disability being the barriers that society puts in your place. You could also argue that single parents are disabled, carers are disabled, people working two jobs due to low income are disabled, socioeconomic, meaning that there's been the lack of access to education, 
that is a disabling barrier. And once we start bringing in all of these different people, all these different communities with all of their different identities, we start being able to really bounce off each other and identify with each other and see ourselves in each other. And then ultimately that leads to conversations that are bigger than ourselves. And once we can see ourselves and other people, that bridge is formed and it leads, at least for me, like to utter joy because you've gone from being part of this quite insular community, disabled community, to really feeling love and joy and acceptance from other communities. I'm a white woman, I'm middle class, but I'm queer. And I found a lot of my queer identity has come through me really embracing my disabled identity and exploring what that means for me. And we can see this like through gender, through race, through pretty much every single minority that exists. We all eventually find solace in each other. And there's a quiet joy, I think, that comes from finding peers. I sometimes think of it as... um as an unclenching <laughs> that's exactly what it is <laughs> yeah it's just that moment where you can go oh there you go okay it's 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 not just safety it's it's a feeling of yeah, just not having to pass not having to put in that extra effort to limber up to a bar that allows you to function as a normal you know it's it's people having no extra what feels like extra requirements or, or needs from you mm. other than just your company and, yeah. and so when you have those moments you know i think talked about it with matthew bellringer going to a low vision center walking in and knowing it's okay if i look lost it's because i'm just trying to navigate and knowing mm -hmm. that i don't have to feel self-conscious about that because this place is full of different practitioners at all sorts of levels who just get it and and it's it's that it's like coming home to your family who've known you for decades they've always known you to have a particular thing and they might not understand the ins and outs of it like a specialist might but they understand a little bit of that lived experience and there's a, that, that those moments where you can just sort of go yeah <laughs> they're really valuable yeah but equally it provides a space of celebration because you know you're not going to have to apologize for your existence you you know our default setting is to say sorry <laughs> like sorry for the inconvenience of me existing in this space and for me, one of the most liberating things was I, I've removed the word sorry from my vocabulary. You know, I, I apologize, genuinely apologize if, if I've made a mistake, but I no longer say the word sorry as like a default. And we like English people do it like all the time. And once I removed it, I saw it everywhere. <laughs> and it's, it, it's fun charging people like, why are you saying sorry? Like, why, why is that something that you've just said to me? So within my company, sorry is banned. <laughs> it's, it's quite funny seeing like our new recruits joining us and, and saying like, I'm so sorry, I'm a minute late to our meeting because of this. And I just like, sorry is banned. <laughs> Try again. And it's like, thank you for waiting for me. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for holding this space for me. Thank you for accepting me as who I am. And that is way more empowering and celebrates our identity in a way that something as simple as language, the language that we use ourselves. 
is oppressive to ourselves in ways that, you know, you would not even think. I had an unpleasant experience doing one of those walkthrough tests for the Rona. Having done a few of the home ones, and they're, they can be fiddly at the best of times, but not being able to get any, you know, there, there was a local test centre, go down there, and it was it was horrible because you have to be alone and they are the the people there are not really trained to be of much help you know i thought i could sort of get a bit of assistance or even just a bit of i don't know reassurance or a bit of support or something and what ended up happening is i spent you know 10 minutes feeling like i've taken up too much space and time and asked too much of these people who who they they're just trying to get numbers in and that is a, I don't know about daily challenge, but it's a constant challenge of figuring out how you allow yourself to take up, quote unquote, extra space. It is difficult because we've been taught that we shouldn't exist in these spaces. I mean, they're literally, literally not built for us. And I think that comes down to if you are in a frame of mind that you feel you can fight this, that is a time when you should use energy to say something but equally if you're not in a frame of mind and it is too much of an energy drain protect yourself get yourself through it and there is an option to pick up that fight at a later date and if that is not something that you feel you can do that's not your responsibility even having like i have an email uh, draft saved that says i didn't experience good customer service it was inaccessible to me. This is my condition. This is how it affects me. Please consider uh, looking into retraining your staff. Flash. Please consider having an accessibility policy in place on your website that's easily readable. Flash. Delete as appropriate kind of email that's ready to go that I wrote when I was in a frame of mind and I could write that. I've got to talk to you about that frame of mind because it's like going to the supermarket hungry. You know, they say you should never go to the supermarket when you're hungry. Do you write that when you're in the frame of mind of, I'm so frustrated? Or do you, you know, wait for that the moment where you sort of feel, okay, I can express myself without emotion. You know, is, is it important to have some of that sort of spiky emotion in there? I think it depends who you're talking to. Because sadly, ultimately, businesses only care about the business case. And there is an argument for presenting the business case to businesses about why they should be accessible and inclusive. There's an argument for not doing that because it's like, this is just the morally right thing to do. Yeah, and I'm a human and yeah. But businesses exist to make money. We live in a capitalist society. So being able to communicate, maybe I couldn't access your venue. So therefore today you lost out on me and my friends coming to lunch. You've lost out on 200 pounds. You've lost out on like a six table cover due to the fact that you were inaccessible. This is something you should look into. It's not on you to like solve their problems, but it's, I think if we all email companies to say how much money we would have spent with them had they been accessible, I think we just all did that en masse, it might get somewhere. I feel like that also helps in those situations where you do feel perhaps a little bit powerless or just so frustrated and perhaps, and I want to get into shame and talking about shame as well, because, you know, that's always a fun topic. (laughs) Um, But in those moments where you feel perhaps 
shamed or shunned or whatever to have the the recourse to go right i'm going to write such an email or to know when you get back I have this email prepared. I can make my case. I don't have to worry about now not having the spoons, not feeling like I can advocate for myself in person because that can, because so often I think you're dealing with defensiveness on behalf or on the part of the other people because they don't, you know, like you said, you don't know what you don't know. And if you're criticizing, you know, especially if it's a small business, yes, there are ways that you, you can do that when you know it's a smaller business, but you're still probably going to come up against defensiveness. And so being able to know, okay, I had a bad experience or chalk it up to, to experience when I come home and know that I've got that, that I can send to them and explain, I think that can, that can be really helpful, not having to feel like you've got to have that confrontation. And equally, that confrontation might not be the safest thing to do either. Many of us are vulnerable and putting ourselves in a potentially even more vulnerable position by creating a, a situation that could become antagonistic you know we don't know how that party is going to react to us saying these things there is a safety element so pick and choosing our battles is a, i think a well-honed practice that many disabled people have when people used to ask me various accessibility things to do with the web that used to be my job you know just making websites i always used to have this sort of slightly bashful response of like oh, I'm, a, I'm a terrible advocate or accessibility person because you know i just use what i use and and i i kind of get on with it but there's a degree of shame there of not being able to feel like you can stand up and say no these are you know my needs that i have these are where i struggle as someone who runs a small business um there are potential avenues there's access to funding there's all sorts of things that i don't necessarily and I suspect other people as well don't necessarily access because there is a weird degree of shame in there and, and there are some people who will think well that's a ridiculous thing why should you be shamed feel shame it's not your fault well turns out you do sometimes i think shame in the very british sense comes from almost you are not allowed to ask for help. And asking for help is a weakness. And we have been taught that like since we were kids, that you don't let like, you power through, you power on. I think shame comes as well from the fact that we haven't had conversations around disability and disability identity. For many disabled people, they may be the only disabled person in their family. So growing up, or acquiring a disability and then not really having or knowing anyone to talk to about it who you know you can have a conversation with and it's not a pat on the head you'll get through it try yoga it'll cure you yeah it's not always empowering conversation and that leads to developing shame around asking for help and shame then around the very like identity that you hold as an individual and one of the first things that we work on around helping disabled people get into work because that's one half of, of my organization is confidence the very first thing that we schedule in is a workshop on confidence um because it it like 99% of the time it's been absolutely decimated. 
and if it was even there to begin with. And that I think is all tied to oh, so many factors. Like name one disabled role model that you had growing up that wasn't a Paralympian. <laughs> The the best one I had at the time was David Blunkett, who was a uh, Labour MP. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, oof. yeah, not 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 super inspiring. Yeah, so you know I've had my disability since the age of twelve, and growing up, who was I supposed to see myself in? You know, no novels. I like I I use fantasy novels as an escape from my day to day. And there were no disabled people. And if there were, they were the sacrifice who they were injured in battle and heroically threw themselves in front of another character to save their life because their life was no longer worth living. And that taught me that identity of being disabled was also a negative. It came with baggage. I was a burden. It was shameful. And that all trickled into how I saw myself as a young adult. And it was really only early 20s. I'd had my diagnosis for a few years and really, really reflecting on what my identity was, whether I could claim the identity of being disabled. I have invisible disabilities. So, you know, that in itself was like, I, I'm not a wheelchair user. I don't use a mobility aid. Oh my God, I'm even disabled. Like, if I just pushed a bit harder, I could like not be disabled, <laughs> like totally negating the fact. If you that don't I'm... look like the little figure on the parking space, then you don't count. No, you don't. And all of that <laughs> wrapping into then what is expected of me as an adult is to be a productive member of society, then ties into actually, can I talk to employers about my disability? Can I ask for? reasonable adjustments which is like in a way asking for help how much help can I ask for until I become a burden and once I'm a burden they're not going to want me that feels like it becomes even more of an issue as a freelancer because my understanding is there are far fewer regulations and expectations from a self-employed standpoint you know I've, I've gone to interviews as a contractor years ago where people ask me questions that you, you don't get to ask in a normal job interview a normal salaried job interview but there's this expectation there that if you've got two people equally able to do this job on a contract basis rather than a normal salaried basis then they're going to pick the person without the disability because it's just quote-unquote less hassle i'd even make the argument that they do that with employment and employees as well. Discrimination is incredibly hard to prove. Equally, it costs a lot of money to take a company to court and see them for that, which is out of the remit for many most disabled people. Freelancing is probably the um, number one sort of like way that disabled people get work because employment is so inaccessible. Freelancing offers that flexibility. It is a really, really difficult one because this is always into like, how do we change the mindset of non-disabled people to recognize the value of disabled people within their organizations? How do we make them recognize that this isn't a, like a risky thing to do? Hiring a disabled person, if you do it right, you actually have the access in place 
from the beginning, you can only win from that. Yeah, you, you, know, you, you, you learn more and also you gain more divergence in your, in your company thinking as well. Yes, you get the person who can actually do the job, but then in your team, you are also bringing on someone who's got knowledge and who's got ex- life experience that could benefit the company and the organization uh, and you know, even the brand as a whole because you've got this insight that other people wouldn't have. 100%. Diversity of thought within organizations is the only thing that's going to keep organizations going into the future, uh, such as I've seen Gen Z coming into the workplace being like the biggest potential spending power is they are actively only engaging with companies that are ethical, sustainable, inclusive organizations. And that is very evident in something as simple as their marketing. Is their marketing inclusive? Do I see myself in their marketing? No? Okay, I'm not going to spend my money with you. I mean, the purple pound is massive. (laughs) Two billion pounds a month is lost from not being accessible and inclusive to disabled people. That's our spending power. And we really need to be more mindful of where we put our money and how we communicate to businesses that they've lost our money. (laughs) Leading on from a conversation with Sophie Turton, is there such a thing as purple washing? Performative marketing, basically. Performing monkeys is like a crude way of putting it. It's important for companies to realise that disabled people, we do our research, we do our due diligence, and we can spot it from a mile away. (laughs) If you've got a disabled person advertising a product that is literally not accessible, we're not going to buy it just because you've slapped a disabled person on it. I'm wondering about that because I, I don't know if I've encountered that, but I know I have been asked. I have helped organizations gain work, not unbeknownst, but um, without me getting a say in it, with someone just, just saying, yes, our, our teammate here is uh, is visually impaired and that gives us all sorts of other things. And it's like, we we didn't agree that you could use my disability as a, a peg in your marketing you know that that's we we didn't we we didn't agree to that that there's a big problem with that as well anyway another kind of crude saying is inspiration porn i do not exist to tell you my story for you to feel inspired by me for purely existing and fighting the battles that you have perpetuated through inaction I am inspirational because I'm 26 and I founded an organization, non-profit, I hire disabled people and we are making active change. I'm inspirational because I've worked bloody hard for that. I'm not inspirational for existing with a disability. So if what you're taking from that is like, if she can do it, I can do it. No, that's not what you need to be taking from that. (laughs) I do not exist to make you feel better about your life. So this is uh, this is Rachel, and uh, hi, this is me back in the present. What a um, what a conversation, eh? There's a lot in there, and if you want to dig into listen, a lot we, we, a lot has been said in this episode. If you want to dig into the numbers and the stories behind some of the things that Rachel has been bringing up, then take a look at the show notes because there are links there to some of the things. Because you know these are some of the stuff that we we talk about here is if. If this feels new to you, it might feel quite bold. 
some of the things, and I think it's it's useful to be able to say, no, 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 there's stuff that backs this up. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, go go and, go and check that out. Uh, you'll find it all at earbrainheart.com, where you can also drop your email address if you would like to stay in touch. Uh, every now and again, I drop a little nugget in your inbox. Um, nothing, it's not like a newsletter or anything like that. Uh, just occasional things to say, here's something that uh, I'm up to that you might find useful. So, We are going to take ourselves a little bit of a break, and then we're going to come back with, I guess, if you like, season two. Come in, like, out of the traps, hot, with an interview with Tamsin Webster, the author of Find Your Red Thread. Uh, So that will be coming in very early October. So do look out for that. If you are not already subscribed to the podcast, again, earbrainheart.com has got all the links there so you can never miss an episode. So let's get back to this particular discussion. And as we recorded this, it was in the sort of end of spring, beginning of summer kind of period. And that meant uh, with July heaving itself over the horizon that it would be time to celebrate Disability Pride Month, which is something I knew absolutely nothing about. Disability Pride Month originated actually in the US uh, in the 1990s, so it's a relatively young kind of um, month of celebration, and that is what it is. It is a month of finding celebration in the identity of being disabled, it's about recognizing like, the lives of the, the disabled people before us who fought incredibly hard, gave their lives a lot of the time for us to have the access that we have now, the accessibility tools that we have now. And I think it's about looking back and giving thanks to them and recognizing them, but making sure that they're not kind of just removed from history. And it's about looking to the future and seeing how far we've got to go still, but finding hope and celebration in who we are as a community and giving love to ourselves and the next generation of disabled people to make sure that this is not a stereotype that we are prolonging and and bringing with us we shouldn't be bringing with us the trauma and the negative shame that comes with being disabled this is really a month of liberation so take up space i think sometimes having like a specific reason to do so helps if you need to put it's disability pride month at the end of every single post social post conversation you know do it if that's what makes you feel like you can take up space Yes. With that in mind, then, you've given me uh, and, and the listener, I think, a lot to think about. Today's going to stick with me. Where should people connect with you and find out more about the work that you do? Yeah, I mean, it started off with a tweet that you saw from me. So follow me on Twitter, uh, Rachel Mole, R-A-C-H-A-E-L-M-O-L-E. Follow me on LinkedIn as well for this kind of chat, but from like a business perspective, I'm on Instagram. I love sharing posts, just everyday posts that just give you a little bit of insight into actually like the disabled experience of that particular situation. Check out uh, my business. It's SICK, S-I-C. Uh, we're at www.sicofficial.co.uk. 